The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the A16Z podcast. I'm Amelia. Today's episode is all about the past, present, and future of the web featuring a conversation between two people who have played key roles in shaping how the internet has developed to date. A16Z general partner Chris Dixon is interviewed by the founder and CEO of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti. The conversation originally took place at our most recent annual innovation conference, the A16Z Summit, and it was also previously released on YouTube, if you'd like to check it out there as well. Hello, good to see you all. So, um... I am very excited to uh, have a conversation with Chris today. Um, I first met um, Chris back in the New York tech scene. Um, Chris was, at the time, was running this company called Hunch. Um, and it was a company that was really um, sparking a lot of thinking among all of the New York tech entrepreneurs. I feel like um, Chris was very much in the, in the scene in, in, in New York. And Hunch was a, co- a company that opened people's eyes to new possibilities. Um, and, and a kind of shift in the web. Could you maybe give a little overview of like what the internet was like yeah. back then and then what, what Hunch was yeah, doing? Yeah, so, I mean, the way I think about the, the, the web, and I, I think the title of this talk is uh, Past and Future of the Web, so we'll try to cover all that, I guess. But I think of it as sort of there's the Web 1 era, which was in the 90s, um, where really a lot of what was going on, it ha- it's similar to a lot of forms of new media, where like you look at early films, and early films, they would just sort of film plays. Um, and then eventually they figured out, okay, like you can have a close-up, you can have an establishment shot, you can, and they had this sort of new grammar, and now, of course, films look totally different than plays and much better. Um, and so early web was kind of like people were taking their magazine or their, you know, brochure and putting it on the web, right? And that was sort of the... I mean, there were exceptions and things like eBay and other things, but for the most part, that was sort of the dominant thing, right? So it was exciting, I think, when you and I got started as entrepreneurs in like the early mid 2000s was this idea that people were starting to realize you could that, that the web was fundamentally a two-way or a multi-way communication device and you know what were all the new design possibilities that were you know you could create right and so that was a big sort of the, the you know twitter and facebook and you know all of the, the the kind of tagging and all these other new kind of concepts like every week there was like this new kind of concept that would come up with like tagging or you know I remember, if you remember, like, Delicious and Flickr and all these other cool things. Um, and it was sort of this uh, relatively small group of people, because I think the co- conventional wisdom at that time was outside of Google, um, you know, the web was this great invention, but wasn't a great business for the most part. You know, people were still getting over the hangover of the dot-com period. Um, but it was a great, in my mind, it was a great period of experimentation, right? And then, like, Wikipedia is an example, which I still think of, I think it's still kind of an underappreciated marvel um, Wikipedia, by the way, for years and years was just was was trashed. I, I wrote a blog post about this. If you're interested, I went back and found all of the the negative thing. It, it was actually like banned in schools. Like it was going to destroy young minds. It was so inaccurate. There was finally in 2007 there was a study done that said it was actually as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. It was like a nature study, and that was like a big revelation. Of course, fast forward to today, and like all the other things are bankrupt, and Wikipedia is sort of the dominant thing. And this idea that you could have like users could come together, right, and collectively, like the interesting thing about Wikipedia is it's something like, there's like 100,000 
um, uh, per day, 100,000 sort of attacks on Wikipedia, people spamming it, changing it. But per day, there's also more than 100,000 people fixing it, right? It's this big kind of ocean of like errors and hacks and mistakes. And then these, this other kind of counterforce of like people doing good things and fixing stuff, right? Right. It's like wrong, yeah. but for, for 15 minutes. And then, That's right. And then That's it's right, right for yeah. five years. That's right. And so, <laughs> um, and so, so that to me, that was sort of the really kind of the big story of that decade of the 2000s. But then, you know, the next era, which you were d- deeply involved with, and I remember you talk, I remember you telling me in like, I think it was like 2000, like it was pre-iPhone, I believe. You you said someday people are going to read their news on smartphones via social networks, and at the time, like you know, we had our, like our StarTac phone or whatever it was, yeah. and it sounded like completely insane. Um, I had of course, a sidekick yeah, for a little while. Yeah, that was pretty, was cool. pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but that that then in my mind that was the next wave, right? Which which uh, I think even at the time. Uh, we all knew the iPhone, like we probably, I had an iPhone, you probably had an iPhone, but the idea that it was going to be as big as it was, like even like, even essentially if you look back, like even like Clay Christensen said, the iPhone is not a disruptive technology. Because he said it's just a high-end, rich person smartphone. What he didn't realize is it actually was disrupting the PC um, and and those things. He likes disruption from the bottom moving moving up and a a fancier phone with bells and whistles isn't disruptive, but a cheap computer that you can take with you everywhere is disruptive. That's right, But then, yeah, but that that was the era that you you were, you know, kind of help pioneer. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, I would say like, it's hard in retrospect because we take the internet for granted today, but if you if you look at um, early internet, there, there was still this long period of everyone figuring out what you could do with the internet. Uh, to your point about film, figuring out the grammar film. And so I, I think initially it was like, oh, you can use the internet as a way of doing, uh, you know, make a, a portal, which is kind of like a newspaper and everyone sees the same thing and there's no personalization, there's no two-way connection. And then I think people started to realize all these things you could do with the internet you couldn't do in traditional media. So it's instantly global, so that was one thing. It's like, oh, you put something online and people read it all around the world. Um, then people started realizing, oh, it can be social. Like, you can share the content with a friend. If you read a newspaper, I mean, some of you maybe have, like, a grandparent who will, like, cut out a newspaper article and send it to you. Um, so it's possible to share, but with the internet, it became really easy to share. Um, it was possible to see the data of the users. So, like, early HuffPost, we just did something super simple, which was we had a click meter on every headline, and we could just see which headlines were people clicking and which ones weren't clicking. If there was an important story and no one was clicking it, we'd rewrite the headline. And so having this two-way you know, data uh, connection was, was another um, piece. The instantaneousness of it was another one. Like it used to be you get, your, you get a newspaper with yesterday's news um, on your doorstep or you'd read Time or Newsweek, which would have news from a week or longer um, in the past. And now you just instantly get a push notification. So I think we, we, we keep... Um, we keep seeing new things you can do with the internet, um, and they keep su- it keeps surprising people. And so, I guess one sort of question for you is: is you know, what are the surprises that the internet still has in store for us? If 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 it's if it's over the course of you know 15 years, we figured out it's global and it's social and it's personalized and it's you know instant and it has all of these these characteristics that have really changed lots of industries. 
Um, are we going to discover new things about the internet in the next few years that are going to open up new businesses and markets? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I think that's, to me, that's the big question right now. It's sort of like, what, how, will, how will the internet evolve? And I, I take that in a few parts. So like, the first thing I'll say is, um, so I, I think the kind of conventional view, I would call it, is if you read like a book like Tim Wu's Master Switch, it's a very good book, but I would describe that as sort of the conventional view, which is the internet is like every other form of media in the past, which is it starts off and it's sort of the Wild West, and then eventually a few incumbents emerge, you know, ABC, CBS, radio, cable, and then it's sort of, okay, those incumbents control it, and it's sort of game over, and they're the gatekeepers, and that's it, right? And that's kind of the conventional view. Um, yeah, in that, in that book, by the way, I, I think the thing that felt most analogous to the internet was radio, because radio was started by a bunch of hobbyists who would put up an antenna and broadcast in their local area, and it was a lot of hobbyists who were hacking radio and, and, and building things out, and then slowly it, it ended up being consolidated into CBS as a national you know, media conglomerate that had lots of control over radio, so it kind of went from hobbyists to... to I think to, of that as, I, the way I describe that is there's, there's technologies that have an outside-in adoption pattern and inside-out. And so outside-in, like open source would be the canonical example, right, where it's completely fringe stuff. I mean, it's Richard Stallman, extreme libertarian, you know, statements yeah. in the 80s at MIT, and now it's 95% of the operating systems in the world, right? Um, com so completely on the fringes. Whereas like the iPhone, that was inside-out. It was Apple in, you know, Cupertino, and a lot but of But really early Apple was the hobbyist, the, no, the, hobbyist, the, the, the PC, hobbyist. The PC was outside-in, smartphone was inside-out. Yeah. Right, a lot of it has to do with, you know, you needed probably a billion dollars to build a to, you know, proper iPhone and to market it and everything else and supply chain and there's a whole bunch of complex reasons why that had to be. Crypto, which we'll talk about, I think it's very much an outside-in kind of movement um, and sort of these hackers and hobbyists and smart people doing and you, it on the weekend. And you like the outside-in movements generally? Like I, you, I mean, I, I, yes, I do like them. I think that they, um, <laughs> well, I think from a startup investor point of view, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor, those are where the bigger opportunities are, right? Because it's much harder if, if, if it's an inside out and it's going to require, you know, a new game console, like it's just the reality of the economics of it, it costs $5 billion probably to build that, to market it, to do all the exclusives. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a very expensive proposition. You, and so, you have enough funds under management to yeah, cover I guess, that, I guess right? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting there, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, the, uh, but, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's these, it's these kind of disruptive things that I, you know, I, I like to say that start off looking like a toy that are sort of hackers on the weekends, right? The, like, is, there's a deep reason why, like, like I, I think there's a deep reason why um, so many of these technology movements were um, uh, done sort of by hobbyists. And it's not just sort of a cultural thing, you know, that technologists like to wear flip-flops and hang out or something like this. There's a deep reason, which is, which is you basically have um, the, the nine to five is governed by business people, right? Nine to five is governed by like what you do during nine to five work hours is governed by people that generally have a one to three year time horizon, right? They have to, like, unless they're the, you know, maybe Jeff Bezos is an exception or something. But like, for the most part, like you want to keep your job as a manager of a company and you've got to manage to a one to three year time horizon. So where, where does the 10 year away stuff, the five and 10 year away stuff happen, right? It happens where, when, when the smartest people get to vote themselves with their time, right? And that's why it happens on the week. And that, that, that's why, like, I, I have always thought, if you go back and read history, like so much of the, you know, I was, I was, there's a great book about Henry Ford I read recently, and you look at early cars, it's, it's, it's like exactly like, you know, Soma 2015 or something. They were in Detroit, they were hacking. If you go read, like, I was reading the old, Ma it was, 
uh, uh, horseless age was like the hot, was a tech crunch of the era. Uh, it's now, now actually Car and Driver is the same magazine. If you go read the old ones, it was all like, oh my God, this like cool new carburetor. And of course, what did they do? Like today we think Henry Ford, you know, he's wearing a suit and everything. No, no, he was like lying down, trying to race as fast as he could with his friends and whoever could do the fastest car. He's like these pictures are covered in oil. Like, you know, he's going 70 miles an hour. The thing's like, like practically blowing up. You know, it was just basically like, it was like Wozniak and like, you know, and, and these other hackers. So, um, yeah, so I think, um, and so I think the big question, going back to the Tim Wu thing, I think the big question with the web right now is, is it going to be like that? Is it Comcast? Is it over? Is it sort of Google, Apple, and that's it? Uh, or is it different? I would argue it's different. The internet is a very different type of uh, uh, medium than, let's say, radio or cable, in that it's software-based. Um, the design of the internet is you have a very, very deliberately very simple you know, core protocols, like internet protocol, um, and then all of the smarts live on the edges, and the edges can upgrade themselves, and are constantly, it's this constantly evolving uh, organism. And it evolves according to incentives. And one of the very powerful things, and one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, the whole kind of crypto blockchain movement, is, it's, it, is it, the whole thing is around how do you design incentives to get people to kind of upgrade and change, the, change the, the code they're running on the internet. And so, to me, a huge question right now is just sort of, you know, is it going to be like the last things, the last kind of radio, TV, et cetera, where it's sort of, this is it, and now startups just get sort of pick up the scraps, or maybe they're, or maybe, you know, there's, there's by the way, there's, I, I don't want to, uh, there's plenty of other, one of the interesting things about tech is there's, there's so many different movements happening, right? So this is sort of the core internet. Meanwhile, there's all this interesting stuff happening in enterprise software, in fintech, so that, that's all going like full speed ahead. I'm talking more of just sort of the core internet architecture structure. Um, I think another really interesting thing, if you look at past historical trends, is there's always sort of a first order and second order effect of any major new technology, okay? So what I mean by that is like the car comes along and the first order effect is you can drive from point A to point B faster, right? The second order effect took 50 years to play out. It was suburbs, trucking companies, e-commerce, you know, what, um, you know, I don't know, mechanized warfare. Like there's just thousands of like kind of secondary, second order uh, implications of this new technology, right? But it took a really long time to play out. And I think the thing that we're seeing right now is with social media and, and the internet, and we're in that kind of, I don't know, if it's a car, we're probably at 1915, not at, you know, 1950 or something. We're still very early on. Uh, we're seeing the effects on the media landscape. We're seeing the effects on the political world. Uh, I think things like cryptocurrency, for example, in many ways, it's, it's, a, it's a consequence of social media. If 20 years ago someone invented Bitcoin, you'd have like a couple New York Times articles quoting some Yale economists, this is stupid, it's over. Maybe there'd be like a, a zine or whatever, like, a, you know, like some weird ma hobbyist magazine you could read, but that'd be it, right? Whereas now you've got an army of, I don't know, 100, probably 100 million plus cryptocurrency enthusiasts who have, they have Twitter followers, they have blogs, they have GitHub accounts, they have Reddit Karma. Um, and they're out proselytizing, and you know it's the fifth estate. Like the fifth estate loves it, right? The fourth estate doesn't. The fifth estate loves it, and it turns out they have a lot of influence these days, right? And so that that's like another example of something that, you know, is is this sort of unexpected second order effect. And what will those other second order effects be? I guess is a, to me a big question. So this concept of fourth estate and fifth estate, basically the press <laughs> and the public on or, or active people on social media and public public, public uh, sentiment. One thing in, uh, about the press that I feel like um, has happened in the last, you know, you know, really Trump was maybe an inflection point, but it was a larger a larger thing, which is um, there feels to be now a lot more fear in the press about decentralized networks, um, and the fear seems to be. 
well, if there's not a gatekeeper, there's not someone checking the facts, or if there's not someone making sure the information has integrity, that you might end up with you know, fascist movements, populist movements, separatist movements, people, people um, um, being driven by emotion and not facts, um, sort of post-truth where politicians can just say whatever they want and, and just spread it on social media and the, kind of bypass the press, kind of go direct to consumer. Um, and I think that that fear probably also has influenced press about crypto because it's a, the promise of crypto is similar to the internet um, in that it is democratizing and giving more people a voice and more, de more decentralized. And, um, and so um, what's, re what, what's legitimate about those concerns? What's, what are the, the press missing? Like how should, how should the press and the public be thinking about the value of decentralized systems? I think, it, by the way, not just crypto in the blockchain sense, but crypto in encryption sense. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we head into another era similar to the 90s where there's real battle. I mean, we see with Apple and the FBI and things like this, just like encryption in general. I mean, is you know, it used to be in the in the 90s, it was, it was they were classified as munitions, like the RSA algorithm and things. And so, and then this whole clipper chip thing. Anyway, so like that, like encryption alone, like Zuckerberg says they're going to go to private messaging and end in encryption. And, you know, so forget about blockchain, just like that alone is going to be a hot button issue and look the reality is you're going to have bad stuff there are, and even, and even these are within, really tough issues with, I mean, even within facebook there was a lot of disagreements about should we have everything be encrypted to protect privacy or should we have content not be encrypted so we can scan the content for child pornography or terrorist activity or abuse or yeah. other kinds of things i mean you know look, look like what you know look, look take the telephone was did bad, do have bad things happened using a telephone? Like probably a lot of bad stuff has happened using a telephone, right? We decided as a society that we wanted to put pretty strict privacy controls over telephone use, right? Well, like in, in court transcripts, whenever you see call me, yeah. you know something bad was gonna happen on that on that <laughs> so, phone conversation. Yeah, because we, 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 we decided like- <laughs> we just some knowing, knowing yeah. laughs in this audience. Uh, <laughs> From a regulatory perspective though, we decided to make that trade off, right? We try, like, um, we decided to make the trade off that, that we wanted to preserve the, the you know people's feeling that this was a private <laughs> feeling that probably more of a feeling but the feeling <laughs> that it was a private uh, medium yeah. um, and decided to regulate it as such and I think that's going to be a big question and look there are going to be trade offs like the New York Times in the one week will have an article about how these you know Google et cetera are, are surveilling you and the next week we'll have one about how they're allowing terrible stuff to happen and so where do you draw the line it's really hard I think. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the great things about the internet in the first era was the fact that it was sort of community governed and controlled. And, and the second era, what was great is that we got amazing web services that were free for billions of people. And I, what, what my hope is in the third era, we could find kind of a happy medium where we'd, we'd recapture some of the kind of community controlled aspects. So instead of, so, so for some of these issues, you know, uh, should political ads be allowed on a social network? Like, should this be decided by a single company or should it be decided by a community? The way that decisions around DNS, for example, the, the naming service for the internet was always a community thing. It's run by a nonprofit. It was like a community, you know, standards. It's done in an open way. Um, this is not, you know, when I, it, it sounds very utopian. It was actually reality until recently, you know, how the internet was governed. Um, and so the question for me is, I, I believe that what we can do now is we now have the technology where we can have kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, why is everyone so upset on, on Twitter, right? There's a bunch of reasons they're upset. But I think one of them is, you know, they helped create that platform. I mean, I was early on Twitter, you were early on Twitter. And then you feel like, uh, you know, you helped create it. And then, and then suddenly all these new rules are getting imposed. Like you kind of felt like you were, sort of felt like an owner in a lot of these cases if you were early on these networks. 
And then you realize later on you're not. You were uh, just setting up a platform for Kim Kardashian. Basically. And so, <laughs> and, and, and not, it's not just users, by the way. It's, it's people like you. Like, it's, I mean, companies like yours, like media companies, right? You have a partnership and then the rules change. And like next week the rules are different. And like, you know, should you have a seat at the table deciding that, right? To me, that's a, right? That doesn't mean it's anything goes. It just means you have a community kind of governed process. And that, that's the core value of the whole kind of crypto blockchain world. Everything is open source. Everything is community governed. It's a very deeply held belief. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it really comes from the open source movement. Um, it's, I, I think of it as, as an extension of open source. And well, we were, we were talking, um, talking backstage about um, the difference between a, a, a city and, yeah. and Disneyland. And you know, if you're if you're in Disneyland, the every everything is is controlled. There's not bad areas where there's crime or yeah. there's things like that. But also, everything feels a little yeah. fake. And and if you're in a vibrant city, there's lots of you know dynamic things. Everyone's building and creating things right. and making things. There's good parts. There's bad parts. Um, and that can be a metaphor for you know what what different kinds of visions of the internet do we want the the wall garden Disneyland internet or do we want the the, the the more vibrant city internet even with some some of the downsides yeah and I think until so to me like one way to think of what a, a blockchain is a simple way to think of it it's the first time that we've had a concept of a uh, community-owned and operated web service, one that's truly owned by a community, right? And so I kind of think of it, if you think of analogy to the real world, like you have an iPhone that's kind of like your home. It's like your personal computer. You have, you can rent a computer at AWS and that's kind of like your office, right? And then you have things like Facebook and Google, which are shared services that feel like public spaces but are actually controlled by a company. And now we have the ability to create things that are kind of more like parks or like cities. They're community controlled public spaces. And you can, it's, it's a very interesting kind of new thing that, that allows, um, and I think it- And you know the rules aren't gonna be changed that's because right. the rules are written into the- That's right, the, the rules block. are written, that, that's actually the core feature of a blockchain. I, uh, the way I would define a blockchain is it's a, it's a computer um, where there are game theoretic strong guarantees that the code will run as designed and the rules won't change essentially. Like that's fundamentally what it is. Um, and so until now, you know, if you were using a public computer, um, if I was on Facebook, just by just by virtue of the fact that um, that computer is controlled by that company, they can change the code, they can change the rules, right? This is the first time you had that. Now there's trade-offs, like it's a, you you lose performance and you you there's a whole bunch of like kind of weaknesses with this architecture that I think will get fixed over the next few years and we're investing in a lot of these things to try to improve it. Um, it's still, you know, early and evolving, but that's a very powerful concept and it means you can have a commons um, and so you can have have a social graph, for example. Um, you know, like actually, if you go back um, for people that are interested in the history of this, like RSS was a, a real contender for a while. Um, so RSS is a protocol, it's like a, a sort of a blogging protocol that was a real contender for a while um, to compete with the proprietary social networks. Um, but the problem with RSS, in my view, I, I was involved in this and invested in a bunch of companies around it, um, is that it didn't have, you, you couldn't make a user experience the way you could with Facebook or Twitter or something like this because you had to do all this kind of weird technical stuff and set up your domain and do all, and so, have these. So we, back, back in yeah. those days, we did a project that was an open source project called Reblog. Yeah. And Reblog would take, was a, it was a, um, server-side server RSS reader where you get all, you could subscribe to all the sites you wanted, you get this information. Yeah. And then you could press a button to repost um, anything you liked and it would say, Chris has re reblogged yeah. this. Um, 
And that was uh, a long time ago. I, yeah. I don't remember the exact year we did it, but then David Karp saw that yeah. and had reblogged to Tumblr. And then Tumblr, uh, and then Twitter's community saw yep. sort of Tumblr having this functionality. And then they added that to, to Twitter where originally when you would retweet something, you would just write RT and yeah. retweet it. And it wasn't built into the software. Eventually Twitter then built it into the software. And then Facebook added the share button kind of looking at Twitter. Yep. Um, and so it was really, to your point about RSS not being able to have the functionality, we saw this need to, to, make, to make content social you know, way before BuzzFeed and made it through using yeah. RSS, which is this open platform. And it was, it was and, and like maybe, maybe 15 to 25 people installed the reblog software. Yeah. And there was like a little network where they would like reblog to, you know, and they had sites that maybe got, you know, a few thousand readers. Um, and so we would sometimes have something get reblogged like three or four times. And, um, and so you sort of saw, oh, this yeah. is how it should work. But to make it really good and for a user, the Facebook and Twitter model was a lot was a lot better. And we never tried to make it into a company, but yeah. had we tried to make it into an open source company, we would have been at a disadvantage compared to... Yeah, you just didn't have... There was no way to have a community, like, controlled place to store things, like to store social... Like, just simply the technology wasn't there yet. Um, there was a Wired article. I, I have a blog post I wrote about it that where they... In 2008 or something, they tried to create a open source social, uh, uh, you know, kind of Facebook competitor, and they said like basically the problem is there's nowhere to store the social graph or something. Now, now what we have today is we have these public commons, we have yeah. these publicly shared data, community controlled databases. So what can we do with it, right? And we're in a very exciting period, I think, where. Like I, I always think of it as like the the history of technology is every ten to fifteen years there's a major new computing cycle. Um, so mainframes, you know, PCs, internet, smartphones, and now today, what are we? You know, what is the cycle? I obviously have my my beliefs. Um, but uh, what what you have is you, you with each of those periods you have kind of a. a kind of gestation phase where people are sort of experimenting. So the early smartphones, you had Sidekick and BlackBerry and Trio, and they were sort of, you know, like they had on a scale of like, you know, BlackBerry was more successful, but the rest were like on the scale of like a few million, you know, maybe 10 million uh, users. Um, and then eventually you kind of get to the point where you have like kind of a breakthrough device. And then you have this amazing golden period um, where uh, entrepreneurs flock to this new platform and then very rapidly explore what I would call like the design space. Like, what can you do with this, right? So, like, the, the smartphone comes along and you know, if you ask people in 2007, what are you going to do with a smartphone? They probably would have taken a lot of the ideas of what happened with PCs, right? They wouldn't have thought, like, the killer thing will be calling a car or sending a, a vintage-looking photograph to a <laughs> network of people. Or, like, like it wasn't, like, it may have been on your list of 100 things, but it probably wasn't, the, you know, if you look at ephemeral messaging, I need, a, this will be the killer app for this. Like, it, you know, I mean, the Clearly, there were entrepreneurs who believed that, but there were, you know, 10,000 credible attempts to create mobile startups, and of that, probably, you know, 10 of, of massive significance kind of emerged. And so, um, I think that we, I believe, we're on the precipice now, not just crypto, I think AI and virtual reality, and there's a bunch of really exciting things happening, but we're, we're about to hit that point where you get kind of the iPhone moment, and then you get... Um, all sorts of interesting uh, experiments that get run. And out of that, it'll be a lot of chaos, a lot of train wrecks, you know. So be, there's pain in this process as well. The other, the other thing that I think happens is, is trends converge that you didn't expect. You know, so I think yeah. just as an analogy, when BuzzFeed started, the iPhone didn't exist yet. Yeah. And then when the iPhone first started getting used, people were 
um, only consuming really text content, maybe images on it, and it wasn't great for video. Um, and then there was this digital video trend. So, so there was this digital video trend and this mobile trend and this social trend. And so there are three sort of different trends. And by, and by the way, I would add cloud to that too. Like if it wasn't for the work that Salesforce and AWS did, you couldn't have stored all that data right, so cheaply. Right. You couldn't and like so, so. So there's really yeah four different trends. Yeah. You know, cloud, mobile, social, digital video, and then it turned out that those trends all converged yeah. into into mobile social. You know, being on a mobile device with this, on a social platform, watching digital video that's streamed from the cloud. You know, so all those things. All those things converge and may, and and then make something seem just like one simple thing, which is like I'm scrolling through a free feed and watching watching video. And so I think you'll see the same thing with crypto and, and you know where the, the I, I, other yeah. trends you mentioned, AI and and um, and, and well, you know, I, VR I, and crypto. Yeah. You know, they're, they're it's it's hard to predict how those trends will converge and end up making something that is more than the sum of its parts. I, I actually think it, I would even go further, and I would say. Not only, I think, are we about on the, on the cusp of multiple major technology breakthroughs converging, so probably AI, what then I would call kind of new devices, so that's everything from talking speakers to cars to VR to blockchain and crypto, and I think those will be kind of like cl cloud, mobile, social, and reinforce each other. I think in addition, though, what else is happening right now, we've got, what is it, like three to four billion people with smartphones. That's going to go to eight billion. In addition to that, the, the hours per day spent on these devices is going to continue to go up. So you're just going to have essentially like 2x the time spent, if not more. Number three, you now have um, major areas of the economy that were previously relatively untouched by technology, namely finance, uh, education, healthcare. I think now entrepreneurs have now figured out uh, ways to kind of uh, bring modern technology into those industries. So I kind of think like you, if you combine like number of people, number of engaged users, level of engagement, plus unlocking what's basically 70% of GDP with these new kind of markets, um, plus, uh, you know, what I think is kind of like multiple major new trends coming together. Um, it's not quite there. The technology's still like all, all these things, like even the, you know, I mean, like Lex is awesome, but like, you know, autocorrect breaks half the time. Like it's still not quite there, but it's very, very close. And the, if, you, if you go and same with the crypto blockchains, like it's slow and Bitcoin has its issues and everything. It's not quite there. It's still the sidekick era. You know, it's, it's not the <laughs> iPhone era. But I, yeah, I think those three things will converge and you have these other kind of macro trends now. Um, and you have these, and the economics too, like the, you know, like the cable bundle is gonna break at some point, I think soon, right? But at some point, like the economics will, like fundamentally, like it will no longer work to have the cable bundle. I think that's relatively near future. And then there will be this sort of massive, you know, wave of people and dollars shifting over to, to, yeah, to the, digital to technology. The, or my earlier comment about all the things the internet enables, TV hasn't gotten the benefit of those things, and now, except for Netflix, yeah. and now all all the digital, all all the big media companies, traditional media companies, are moving over, and they're going to have the advantages of, of the internet. Like for example, uh, you know, fl the idea that you would flip through the channels hoping something good is on was the yeah. way that traditional yeah. media has historically worked, and as opposed to what is the best content for me that has ever been produced in the universe, yeah. I'm going to you know watch that. Um, and so now that's possible with Disney. It used to be that was possible with Netflix archive. Now it's possible, you know, so, so we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot of big industries that are slower to change starting to adopt, adopt these technologies. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the, I mean, the, 
it's kind of surprising 25 years into the internet that the only industries that have been really, quote, disrupted have been, I think, media, maybe transportation, and, and maybe starting to happen is retail, right? And then the rest, I mean, if you look at the list of incumbents and every other industry, it hasn't changed that much, right? Yeah. Um, and even the media world, right? Like, still, the vast majority of people, like, they sit there and they, you know, they watch whatever reality TV and on a regular cable box and like it hasn't changed that much yet. Yep, yep, it's slow, it's slow for these to change. There are also times when I feel like the converging trends end up creating some kind of a Frankenstein situation where, where the trends are in conflict with each other. The goal of being the future of media and recommending content to people yeah. and the goal of being a place for people to connect with their friends in a private you know, way um, with close friends feels to be in conflict, so you end up having Facebook. Mm. It's almost like we're having a phone conversation and then you say something yeah. interesting and then it's like, oh, we're gonna show that to a million people. You know, yeah. It's a little weird if you're talking with your friends and you know, and sharing content with a the, with the small group that that could end up reaching tons of people. And there are trends that kind of smash into each other in a way that causes problems and... Um, yeah, we're, it feels like we're in a very interesting time now with uh, all of, there's so much attention on these platforms and, you know, the decisions they're making and um, and just the, like, we, I, I don't feel like we've, I mean, maybe you have insight into it, but I, I don't feel like we fully understand how to, uh, you know, the, 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 we, the, the etiquette, the personal etiquette, you know, like, is it okay to... Uh, you know, talk a certain way on Twitter or go find somebody's old tweets or, you know, should the plot, like all these things are being figured out, right? Like it's, it's, and it's very confusing. And, um, I think kind of my view, at least causing a lot of, uh, upheaval, kind of social upheaval or something. Yeah. People don't know how to interact with each other. Yeah. People don't know how to figure out what, what information they should pay attention to. Um, and, uh, I, I, de I definitely think there's, um, um, and, and then I feel like when you look at the, co the press coverage of all this, there's just so many trade-offs that it's, you know, and reporters, I mean, I know this because we have, Buzz, you know, BuzzFeed News covers this stuff, and reporters are not in a, in, you know, it's not really the job of a reporter, at least classically, to read everything and make a policy recommendation. They're just trying to say, oh, there's this like, here's a leaked, you know, document, or here's some information people didn't know, or oh, this company's struggling with deciding between these two different, you know, possibilities. Um, but it doesn't feel like there's a there's a clear um, sense right now of of this is where society is headed and this is how technology is part of progress. And, um, and is, there, is there a way to get more of that back where, where right. people see the benefits of technology and, and you know, both to the economy, but also to people's lives and to society? And Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, I, my view is partly this feeling of, I do, I, this is again, going back to my main area of interest, the crypto stuff, but the, it's this feeling I think a lot of people have that it's sort of this bait and switch, you know, that, uh, that they help build up these networks, you know, whether it be a marketplace or a social network, and then the benefits go to other people, the governance goes to other people. Um, and so I think having more, uh, you know, new architectural designs that um, provide incentives and are more inclusive um, can can help with that. Now that getting that message out, like it is very hard um, because there's a lot of like negative, uh, uh, I think, misunderstandings around, you know, going back to Bitcoin and crypto in general, and like it's actually like a very kind of utopian meritocratic technology, but that's but that's do, not does, very hard uh, to explain the, to people. You know, I think some of the some of it from the fifth estate is you'll see people on social media being like, 
you know, triple your money right now yeah. and like po trying to basically pump a, an altcoin or something yeah, like yeah. that. And how much has that um, driven progress in, you know, the fact that people are trying to make money is in its powerful incentive. How much has that driven progress in, in crypto and, you know, blockchain? And how much is that like holding it back? And is there a way in a, in a more decentralized thing, uh, you know, uh, uh, system to, to shift the narrative towards things that will lead to the, to the overall benefit of the total community? Yeah, I think... Um it's definitely a good point. And like there was this big run up in 2017 where a lot of people kind of, you know, sort of had this get rich quick kind of mentality. Um, the, um, um, I do think what's really important about it is uh, th there's the negative side, as you highlighted. The positive side is it's a business model that doesn't depend on advertising and tracking users, right? And so, um, Mark Andreessen talks about this, how the original, there's actually an error code. You know, people are probably familiar with error code 404. There's a, you know, when you go to a web page, it's not there. There's error code 402, which was never implemented. It said payment required. And so the original idea with the original internet was to actually have like money as a native unit, right? Now, of course, we have credit cards and things. It took a long time, by the way. And in fact, it was very controversial. SSL, you needed SSL for credit cards. And that was actually uh, almost regulated away because people thought, well, who would want encryption except for bad people? But it turned out you need it for banking and things. Anyway, so we've now grafted on kind of the legacy uh, financial payment systems onto the internet, and it sort of works, right? But still, the vast majority of these big companies are funded through advertising. So I think one other utopian idea is that, um, is that you know, I think one of the reasons people are disillusioned is they feel this sense of like they're not part of it, they aren't included, um, and the business model uh, they feel like is extractive. Um, and you know, and we see this with GDPR, and I think there'll be similar kinds of stuff happening in the U.S. around sort of privacy. Um, and so, you know, I think well, there's it, this huge. I mean, it's in, in my sort of corner of the of the of the internet with digital media. There's a huge number of intermediaries who are skimming money for, um, in the in the ad tech space, yeah. and oftentimes the main value they're providing. Um, to an advertiser is is surveilling and tracking users where, where if users had the choice to say, do I want to be tracked this way or not, they would almost always say no. Um, and these are companies that don't actually make content or create create yeah. apps or build things that, that consumers value. Um, so there's some hope that yeah. that blockchain could help help with that. I think right now what I think a lot of what we're feeling is and why people are upset is they don't feel like the interests are aligned. And the question for me is, can is there a way to realign that or is it just too late and that's just the state of things and maybe that's the pessimistic view and it's just well, gonna I mean, be, one, you know, One or, trend we have seen at BuzzFeed, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I would never have guessed the transformation that's happened in our business from advertising revenue being essentially the only kind of revenue to now having um, so many of our, of, of, so much of our audience is looking to transact, and and so 500 million in GMV, where people are seeing, you know, products we might recommend or things that we're talking about, um, and and a multiple of that of other kinds of of transactions that we're indirectly influencing, but we're we're seeing that you know again to this convergence of trends that used to be content shifted to mobile, but people weren't transacting on mobile. They were going back to their desktop to do their shopping where they could you know, type in information and do things more easily. Um, now it's better to shop on mobile. That's where more people want, want to shop. You can double click and buy stuff. Your credit card's integrated in. Um, 
And so we're, we're seeing a huge shift where media has become much more transactional, where people are looking to be inspired to do something, go on a trip or buy a product or try a new experience. Um, and I think a lot of it is also just these online marketplaces are starting to dominate um, the entire economy. And there's infinite choice. If you're Gen X, Y, or Z, or anyone actually who's, who's using the internet, you're used to being able to watch any show on the streaming services, watch, uh, um, listen to any song on Spotify, um, you know, go to any travel destination with Airbnb or one of the OTAs. And, and so you're looking for some, some culture and content and vicarious experience and something that will inspire you to choose which option out of all of these options are worth doing. And now with your phone, you can just transact. Um, and so I think that um, there is this larger shift towards just transactional um, media as opposed to impression-based, um, advertising-based, surveillance-based. And also, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but also the, uh, the sort of the, the uh, adjacent, like, like so using Tasty to, to build a brand and then partnering with uh, retailers to sell products related to that, right? So, so instead of like new models like that where you're inserting yourself into the kind of the, the yeah, there, you purchasing be, experience. Yeah, there's like a 100-skew line of yeah. tasty products at Walmart. So when you see a video yeah. where people are cooking, they're like, oh, I can actually make that recipe and I can buy the pots and pans. And, yeah. You know, like connecting. I feel like what one, one sort of shift is just connecting the internet to people's actual lives and the things that they're doing, uh, you know, every single day. And I think that, you know, crypto and blockchain can help people do that in a way where there's more trust and more security and, and that they're more part of it and, and can build it with, with, as, as part of a community. All right. right. We're out of time. Um, I, um, I only asked the first question though. So, (laughs) um, I don't know if we have a couple more hours, but uh, th- um, thank you, Chris. And, thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, everyone. Yeah.